are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Also, just want to apologize for my voice. I'm a bit under the weather. Anyway, this episode features myself, Daniel, and Angelique, and we chat with veteran stage and screen actor Brian Thompson about literature, the stage, screenwriting red flags, Mortal Kombat, method acting, 50-gallon drums of lube, and a lot more. Also, if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> So, Brian, before the glitz and glamour and the Home Depot cabinets, what were you into back in the day before you were an actor? You're growing up, you're a kid, were you a big reader? Racious reader. God, I wish I had that picture to show with how skinny I was. Oh, my God. You know, I had no fat. I had a, I was really, I lost all my baby fat when I was four. And so, with this face, my nickname in, in grade school was Boneface because you could see all the bones in my face. Hey, Boneface. You want to play ball? So I was a bit, I think like a lot of people, you know, you feel socially isolated. You feel sort of outcast. Like I was terrorized in grade school. You talk about bullying. Holy shit. <laughs> Cyber bullying. There was three kids that would chase me to the corner of the playground and throw me into the wood. And whoever caught me would get to pound on me. These were messed up kids. What decade was this? This is the 1960s. This was like 1968, 69. And those three boys that did that, one of them apologized and the other two were dead by the time they got out of high school. Holy you shit. Know, there's, there, there's a percentage of messed up people in everybody's culture. You know, I, I, it, was a small town, it was a small mill town in Washington state. I took piano lessons. I played the clarinet and I read voraciously. I would say the books that affected me the most in junior high school were, do you know who Leon, the author Leon Uris is? I'm not familiar. Yeah, he was quite popular in the 70s. He, he wrote about the, the Holocaust and that was probably my first loss of virginity about how cruel the world is. And out of that saying, out of those books, I, whenever things got kind of down and ugly, I came up with the saying, I'm sure I'm not the only one with this. I said, well, it's not Auschwitz. And that kind of puts a lot of things in perspective really quickly. Very true. So yeah, Red, I loved the piano. I uh, played the guitar a little bit. Probably should have played the guitar more. I was good enough to get a piano scholarship at Central Washington University. It was just a scholarship where they you didn't have to pay for the private lessons you were given. There was a guy named Jim Washburn at Central Washington University. He and I were both freshmen. And I would go watch him play the piano. And I knew that if I practiced eight hours a day for the next four years, that I would not be as good as him. You know, when you see a prodigy. Yeah. You wouldn't. And so Jim Washburn prowess really discouraged me from keeping, I was a piano, I was a music major as a freshman. Yeah, Jim Washburn erased, <laughs> he brought me, he brought me to reality. Brian, you might be able to impress a couple of girls on a Friday night with your piano playing, but you ain't gonna impress anybody that wants to pay you. And at the same time, I, I you know, got involved in acting. I asked Paul Delashaw, a friend from high school. He's, <laughs> Paul, Paul became a pastor, actually, interestingly enough. A lot of people get involved in drama become go into become pastors or attorneys. I asked Paul if he needed a ride home from school because he was on my way home and I had a Volkswagen bug nice. and, and he said, no, I'm trying out for the school play. Brian, there's a part you'd be great for. 
and there and there was I you know uh, uh, ten minutes later I was I was trying out for the school play and I played this the Russian ballet instructor in the comedy You Can't Take It With You and it was absolutely the most mind blowing soulful experience of my entire life. It was helped by three of the girls that were in the play were three girls that I adored. You know, the girls that made your heart flutter when you saw them in the hall. <laughs> Julie LaFaw, Marsha Jacobson, and Nancy Johnson. Uh, Johnson? Nancy Johnson? <laughs> I think so. I think it was Nancy Johnson. Tall, slender. Nancy, if I got your last name wrong, you played the grandma in You Can't Take It With You. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and to just be, and Marsha, Marsha, I got to carry Marsha on my hip. And Marsha had a pair of the nicest mammalian protuberances in the entire high school. She had curves. So just to get to have those bump into your, we never, I never dated any of those girls. They had boyfriends, they were taken. Marsha and I did um, get, smoke a little marijuana together. And oh, mind you, no. oh, it was fun. <laughs> Absolutely fun. Just, just, you, know, you know, when you don't have any responsibilities, getting high, listening to music, it's well, life's per life's perfect. You talk about like high school. Or you talk about like Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got the I got to college and I had to stop smoking because I didn't have time for it. Right. You know, I had I, I was a, I was a business major. I was playing football. I couldn't stop reading plays and Shakespeare and memorizing plays. If, if I if I heard a monologue that I liked, it wouldn't leave me alone until I memorized it. I you know it's hard to memorize things when you're stoned. <laughs> I think I I th I don't know if I smoked pot four times in four years of college. Have you, know? you well? Have you after? College? Have I since? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I think I, you know, I did mushrooms four times. That's I, I think it should be prescribed in college. There should everybody should take, you know, psych one hundred and one, <laughs> econ one hundred and one, personal finance, and psilocybin one hundred and one. Everybody gets to you know with, generate some different perspective. You know, especially as going on a trip, it just changes changes your perspective. I I think. I think it made me a more loving person, without without a doubt. I mean, after my first mush trip on mushrooms, I went around looking at people's souls, like kind of their feeling their energy for two weeks. That like the body was just the meat suit. I was like looking in their eyes and just trying to feel the feel the energy from them. That's a you know, and I I think there's people that never get past the the surface, the sensation that somebody's surface gives them, and that was a that was wonderful, just fantastic. But uh, all of those things, they're, they're, they're like, it's like they're, you know, it's like going on a trip. You, you go to a magical place, uh, you know, the Bahamas or Hawaii or, or the Great Wall of China. They're beautiful things to do, but you don't, it's, the, you can't go there every day. You stop getting the same, you know, it's, a, it's a something to experience and then you move on. How far along did you start taking acting very seriously to where you wanted to pursue it as a career? Ah, that was, well... The first two years of college, you don't really have to get serious, right? You're just like taking general requirements. I, I was a music major. My father hadn't made a lot of money as a teacher. And Central Washington University has a fantastic business school. So I found myself struggling through business classes. I mean, struggling. I mean, I had to painfully study to make it through the first year of accounting in Econ 101, Econ 102. Oh, God, those classes hurt my brain. And also, you are so at a disadvantage when you're a freshman, you're 18, 19 years old, 20, taking classes with 35-year-olds who have already worked a decade, whose companies are sending them back to business school. You have no perspective compared. I mean, those there was, I would say half the classes were people, I'd say people over 25 and several people over 30. And in class, it was like they were having private conversations with the professor and, you know, we're sitting back there like, you know, chumps. They <laughs> couldn't really understand the, what they were all talking. And, and they just freaking aced all the tests. And I was like, you know, C, C minus. was just, you can't compete with people that have that type of real world, world perspective. So... And plus, I was living. I, I, if I wasn't playing football, when I didn't, I even, I was in a play when I played football in the fall. I, I did a play and played football one fall. 
and you know it was coming on my senior year oh the, the I, i've told this story before but it's worth it's a great thing to have happened to be the company that i had worked for coast marine construction in portland oregon had offered me a job supervising construction jobs when i got out of college and full benefits and the work was really romantic we built docks bridges and piers that's how i paid for my last three years of college was working on a crane on the Columbia River or very near the Columbia River putting in foundations of large building. You're in a skiff with an outboard cruising across <laughs> the Columbia River out to this giant crane and the sun's coming up over the Cascade Mountain Range. At the end of the day, you put in a whole roll of piling. I mean, you, you're building big shit. <laughs> big shit. And it was romantic. And I was... Halfway through my second summer working with Coast Marine Construction, the head dudes on the job were asking me my thoughts on how to lay a job out, about how to just organize equipment, how to, how to basically, how we could set up an assembly line. Because we had a lot of repetitive things to do. And, and, I, and, and I would just, hey, what if we do this? And I think I could do this faster if I had this piece of equipment. And anyway, we made, we made a lot of money for that company in those two years. And they, they knew that I had a, pers a, a pretty decent mechanical perspective. And so they had offered me $50,000. And I was walking across campus in the fall of my last of my senior year in college. And there was a they were jackhammering a building. And I had done a run of the jackhammer a lot. And that jack as I walked by it, you know, that impact sound hit me in the stomach. And I got nauseous. And, and I, I, I think it's, as far as I can remember, it's the only panic attack I've had. I mean, I had a panic. I was like, started sweating and I, and I wanted to vomit. And I went back to my dorm room and I'm like, what's going on, man? What's going on? And I'm like, what was the trigger for this change in physical symptoms? And it's like, you know, it's like that, you know, it's the wee small voice. This voice says, well, you don't, you don't want to do that work, Brian. Well, are you lazy? No, why don't you want to do that work? You know why you don't want to do that work. Why? Because you want to be an actor. I do want to be an actor. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, how are you going to be an actor? You're in Ellensburg, Washington, famous for a once-a-year rodeo. So I, I wrote letters to the Screen Actors Guild and Actors' Equity asking them if they would recommend schools. They said they don't recommend schools, but they recommend this book called Acting Professionally. There was a copy of that book in the library. Holy shit, you know, something read acting professionally. The end of that book listed the 10 uh, best professional acting programs that were degree certified. So if you got a degree, then you could teach it. You, you could teach somewhere. So there were master's programs in acting. And I was like, oh, crap, I don't have, a, I don't have an undergraduate degree in drama. And so I, you know, quickly contacted the schools. You don't need an undergraduate degree in drama to get a master's of fine arts in drama. You don't need one. I'm like... <laughs> Really? So I auditioned for those schools and I didn't tell anybody. I sent out the applications and, and I got to audition and I basically got a full ride to the University of California Irvine in their Master of Fine Arts program from an audition that I did at the San Francisco Opera House in the winter of 1981. That's a hell of an audition. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun audition. What was it? I sang a song. They had a penis there. They looked at my resume to make sure I wasn't bullshitting. They asked me, I said, well, can you sing something from the opera La Traviata? And I'm like, uh, well, I was, I was a small part. I'd have, to, I'd have to sing all the other parts too. So I, so I sang about three minutes of my scene from La Traviata, but I did the female vocalist, the male vocalist. I did all, I did all three parts. Uh, I did a Shakespeare monologue and I did a contemporary monologue. And they asked me questions. We sat down and talked. And, you know, two weeks later, I got the letter saying, hey, we're going to waive out-of-state tuition. We're going to give you a teaching fellowship. And we're going to give you a job uh, so you can pay for school. So I spent the next three years acting, singing, and dancing almost 12 hours a day, almost seven days a week. And it was when people said to me, nice work, it would confuse me because I was having the time of my life. Now I know it. nice work, because it is. The wonderful thing about college is that you get to work on some of the best literature ever written. It's not even close to what you get to do as a professional. <laughs> not even close. Like, you know, I just got to be in Macbeth with, with Denzel Washington and Fran McDormand. That, okay, one, there's one play I know that was, <laughs> there's some literature. It took me 36 years to get an audition 
for a, an A-list movie. When I auditioned for The Terminator, nobody knew who those guys were. And that's, that's the best. Those are the two best feature films I've ever gotten to be involved with. The first one and the last one. And the stuff in between, there's good stuff in between, but it's not, you know, it's not something that is going to get nominated for an Oscar. That doesn't matter. It's a shame. I give less than two shits about an Oscar movie. I mean, I couldn't even tell you what was in the Oscars like the last decade. Have are any of you seen Coda? No, no, I haven't seen it. I Coda won the Oscar for best movie this year. Yeah, I hadn't what? even heard of it. The hell is it, until it was the a very Oscars. low budget movie that they shot for very little money. Coda, when I saw it, I'm like, I'm telling them, because nobody, my, like my acting friends hadn't seen it. No, we haven't <laughs> seen it yet. We got the screener. You got to see Coda. It's the most heartwarming movie I've seen in years. Yeah, Coda. I'd love, like, I'd love to be in Coda. I know, I know you guys love, you love this action adventure stuff, don't you? <laughs> well, love this. yeah. <laughs> Macho. Is it that, what is it about that that you love? That Do you know why you love it? Do you know why? It, well, I have a very short attention span, I guess. And uh, if I'm sitting down to watch a movie, a, a couple explosions and a couple of asses getting kicked certainly help the situation move along for me. Like comic books and life sucks. I watch a movie, I want to have fun, I want to watch people have fun, I want to watch beat the shit out of stuff. Did you see the movie Life Stinks? I don't need to, I live it. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen it. Uh, you've got to, I, I live it. What is, what's your, uh, when you're not doing podcasts, what's, what's your uh, form of employment? Pornographic movies. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nothing quite so exciting or entertaining or anything at all like that. No. Have you ever been in those uh, those sex clubs? Have you ever been in one? Should I have a lawyer or an adult <laughs> in the room, or both? Well, the thing is, I get I got to work in one once where they actually it's I have. Sex club where they have lockers and stuff, and people pay membership, that kind of thing. No, no, yeah. it was just a pay at the door. This this one was downtown at Los Angeles, and it was like people had their own like they had their own lockers in there. And I'm the sure most they do. You're in Los Angeles and Gomorrah. And I mean, the, down here where the Lord still shines, <laughs> and stuff, we don't have that on the street corner, dude. There's one in Atlanta. <laughs> As I said. Well, there was a lot of creative construction in this. Every room was like from a different era or a different theme. You know, like you had Renaissance castle room and you had, uh, you had like this fake caves, you know, like people could just go in there and be cavemen. Let your imagination run wild. One, one, one room was just caveman instead of his club. Yeah, big cock. Big club. Get out of my head. subject but the the one thing that really if i found memorable as soon as you stepped off the elevator right on the floor with the you know the locker room and all the different rooms was a 55 gallon drum of sexual lube with a with a hand pump on it and a dispenser of like uh, of like a 12 ounce styrofoam cups right there so you could you could get a a 12 ounce i sold ounce. those Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> the, the drums of the drums the of lubricant and the various 55-gallon drums of lube. You've sold them? I sold well, two of them actually during well, my time as a well, who, smut purveyor. Who sells those? What do you what do you call a 55-gallon drum of lube? Drum of lube. A good time. We've got the travel, we've got the we've got the single sample packets. The travel size, your eight ounce, 16, 24, or right, the drum. The <laughs> drum, because you know, a 12 ounce cup, you can't, you can't even, they don't even have 12 ounce containers of that at the drugstore. Not that I've been in that aisle, but I, I, <laughs> I think those, right? The niche market. So it's just like a water cooler only is lube. It's a I keg, mean, it's a keg of How of do you lube, have yeah. the conversation, do, do they have conversations like you do at work? You know, so you ever think they're going to get off that island? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> I, you know, I could have gone there with like a quart bottle 
with a lid, and that you know, it'll last the rest of your life, wouldn't it? I mean, because that's that's only for like, because it's only I thought it's supposed to like only be for emergencies. I must have been a lot of emergencies. They got the way you talk about it, it's almost like a fondue. We got a font only instead of chocolate is KY. Well, I mean, they, they, they use that to, to put on the, the the vinyl and leather suits. Oh, you know. you're you're right. Yeah. If they were going to squeeze into something, that would be a really because it's water soluble. Oh. Right. And, and it, it wouldn't, it's you're very right. Okay. Like, I did not say, damn it. I'm just giving myself away. Yeah, good, <laughs> good idea. I yeah, I had, I never would have. No. Now listen, you can, you can tell us if you've had to slip into some pretty tight slipping vinyl. Have you done that? I absolutely I have. Okay. <laughs> Here. Here, I got it. It's time for house taller number two. You might have to break out the alcohol. Yeah. I uh, I had to give up drinking I, alcohol. I liked it too much. That can be a problem sometimes. You know, when you're kind of master of your schedule, which actors are, you know, working actors are masters of their schedule almost every day of the year. Because as a supporting actor, you know, you it is the best job in Hollywood. You work, especially when you're in overseas or on location, because you work a day, you got a week off, then they call you back for a couple more scenes. Yeah. You got all that time off to go explore Europe. And that's how I've seen Europe. I, I have never... Whoop, did you hear me use a superlative? Yeah, there you go. Watch yourself. <laughs> I have only paid for my own flight. See, because I was about to commit an inaccuracy. I bought one ticket once to Europe the first time I went there. But every other time has been on uh, somebody else's dime. That's the best way to travel. It's so much nicer because you get, you're get you instilled in the local culture. You know, sometimes you're in a hotel. I prefer to get an apartment when I can. But, you know, people from the crew bring you to their, ask you over for lunch and you get to go to their community and you get to be a part of their culture versus that tourist culture, which doesn't really relate to the real culture of the, of the town. It was really great being in Slovakia in like 1995. That was just only a few years after the wall had come down. It was really beautiful to be there because everybody there at that time, pretty educated. They did, you know, the communists did get people educated and to hear them talk about the pros and the cons. And and it was so recent. That was a, a marvelous eye-opening experience. And, you know, and we got to fight dragons. So I thought that was on the, the uh, Dragonheart set. Dragonheart, right. Yes. Before we get to there, let's go back a little bit and let's talk Cobra. How did How did that opportunity come about for you? That was strictly by the book. My agent got me an audition and the script was like, oh my, I mean, you know, the script was that, the audition was that scene at the end, you know, you can't stop the new world. Your filthy society will never, I mean, I read that. I remember reading it the first time just going, how the hell am I going to, oh, this guy's really twisted. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> So I wrote, I wrote my own little, it's, and I, I should look for it. I wrote, he did organize these people somewhat. I wrote this thing, I think it was called Abaddon's Credo. And so I wrote this about what, he, what his belief was, what he wanted. And it was like a single page credo for our club. That helped me hook into, I don't know how twisted that guy was. That. Love to read yeah. that. Yeah, you don't, you know, not to, not to denigrate or, or, or not denigrate is not the right word, not to reduce, not to minimize, there's the word, I'll eventually get there, not to minimize, you know, people that have, you know, PTSD from from their work overseas, which is, which you know, they really have to try to put some bookends on horrors that, that I have never seen. But I had PTSD from doing that part. I mm. did. Yeah, because you're doing everything that that person does except have the original kernel of the idea. And I don't remember who that actress was that played the nurse that, you know, screamed at me when I was attacking her. But she gave me nightmares. You know, when someone looks at you because they're afraid for their life and they're crying and screaming and desperately wanting you to stop. And they're, I mean, she's looking, you're looking at this person, they're looking at you like you're the most despicable person in the world. That per she, she gave me nightmares. It just made me feel awful. Anyway, I jumped. I jumped ahead, but uh, anyway, I wrote that credo. I went. I met her, and then she said, "You know, a few days later, I got to meet the director." Then the director called me in again, 
with uh, one of the producers. Then they called me in and had me meet Stallone. And that was, I knew I was getting close at that point. And then I had another meeting with Stallone and the director. And Stallone told me that he thought I was too nice. He said, I think you're kind of a, I think you're kind of a, you know, a sweet kid that grew up in a nice house. You know, this, this guy's got, is really fucking sick. Well, I said, yeah, that's, that's, and he asked me, are you ready to play a lead in a movie? I said, this is what I've been training for for the past seven years. And then a few days after that, they called and they said, we want to screen test him. So they did a real, they spent, they might have spent $50,000 on my screen test. Because they had two 35 millimeter cameras with film crew, a full lighting crew. They had lights. They did the whole makeup. We did wardrobe. Oh, yeah. All those. And these were, they didn't, you know, those weren't college kids that were doing that stuff these were the best people in the business they were the people that did shot the movie and so then i did the screen test and i think it was two or three days later they called and it was one of the greatest one of the greatest phone calls i'll ever get in my life i was working at the conan show at universal studios tour i was playing the evil villain taurus mordor in an 18 minute play it was a live they called it a sword and sorcery spectacular and I was the evil villain. I was on stage four times a day for 11 minutes with three two-hour lunches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, and, and, and it, it, it was, that job was the funnest job I've ever had in my life. You know, the, the tourists wanted to meet you since you were an actor in a, at Universal Studios. So we, we paraded around the park half-dressed. So I was working and... And the cast, they, they knew all about the auditions. And every time, you know, I got an, another audition and they knew I had screen tested. And oh, it's hard to tell this story without tearing up a little bit. The, the cast was backstage when the show finished. It was bedlam. Just, you know, costumes being thrown here and people on the phone. And just, you know, we we're in our 20s. We're half dressed, beautiful red Sonia. And it was very, very sexual dance that went on all the time between the players and the performers and everybody congregated in the dressing room and had three barbers chairs rows of makeup mirrors two bathroom doors men and women's in an area where the costumes were hung and i was the last person to get off stage because that's just how the stage worked out off stage and so i had i had to fall in this pit and then i had to crawl a pit and come upstairs and I came upstairs and the whole cast was there, silent. You, you, you know, it's never quiet backstage, almost never. See, I said never, I, you gotta qualify a superlative. Almost always was bedlam backstage, but it was quiet. And Lori Benson, the makeup artist said, Brian, it's your agent. So I walked through them, through the gauntlet with everybody there, they all looking at me. And I took the phone call and said, hi, hi Brian, it's Cindy, you got the job. I went. I got the job and the place just exploded. They grabbed me, the phone went on the floor. They, they tackled me, they're on the ground. They were punching me. The gal that played Red Sonja was rubbing her boobs in my face. Because <laughs> it was, that's how we were. We were this, we were this group of marmosets that just, because we had been, at that point, we had been a team for over a year doing this, show together and, and we were pretty tight because people got hurt sometimes you know we had all been to the hospital with each other you know because we were using swords and sometimes we weren't always that accurate through through injuries we were tight we were a tight group and that because how could you get a, a phone call to get that kind of news in a group of people like that ever it was just a beautiful you know if, if they'd have called me at seven o'clock at night where i was home by myself and you know then the next day I'd be going yeah i got the job it wouldn't be this this tension that built and then just Bam! Just exploded. It's a beautiful day, beautiful moment. Because you knew you knew it was things were going to change. You know, right. that was that was the next step in a career. And did you notice things start to change for you after Cote War? Well, did your opportunities pick up drastically? Yes, and I think I wish I had Brian Thompson, age sixty-three, to coach Brian Thompson, age twenty-five. I think we're all like that. I wish because I, I did Brian Thompson, 63, to coach me when I was 25. I was so – I knew how hard it was to get a job acting. And so anytime anybody offered me a job then, I'm like, oh, sure, I want to do it. They're paying. I literally didn't know that there were bad movies. 
I had never seen it. My parents didn't let me go to movies. The few movies I saw when I was going through college were awesome. I took some jobs I, I would never, I would have told Brian not to take and wait for the next better script. But you're so, you're 25, you want to work. You know, you haven't worked for a couple of months, which is, no, who gets, Brian, I would have said, Brian, I don't give a shit if you don't work for two or three years. You're waiting for the next script. And because I got bombarded by these B movie makers, I just did the movie, they're paying, they're, they're paying well. I should have turned them down. Said, no, I had enough money to make, I, I didn't need the money. You know, it's certainly nice to make more money. I could have lived on the money I had. If I still had my job at Universal Studios, that would have supported me. Right. I would have told Brian not to do those movies because those scripts were awful. What movies come to mind when you think back? Oh, what well, movies I, are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> well, right off the top, there was Commando Squad, which was a Transworld Entertainment. There was another one called... I don't want to throw... I don't want to throw... <laughs> All right, well, look, let, if I can... But I will throw... Fun. I'll throw Commando Squad under the bus well, for sure. Let's see this. While we were talking, I saw Commando Squad on your IMDb list. I'm like, wait a minute. I haven't seen that. Commando Squad. That sounds badass. Let me see it. I look at the cover art, and this is me. That is, I look at the cover art, and that is it's making me a promise. So I'm going to go and watch that movie. So you never know. Because, I mean, that's the kind. I, I live for that kind of stuff. So and now I'm curious because whenever I was looking it up, it doesn't seem to have a listing for it. So I'm going to find it and watch it. Oh, like they they made they they wanted Kathy Showers was the playmate of the year in 1986 and they wanted her to have a different look. She had this beautiful long blonde hair. They stuffed all that long blonde hair in this stupidest black wig that made her look horrible. I mean, if they gave her ponytails, she'd have looked 100 percent better. <laughs> I mean, just dumb. This people, you know, people just because they have the money to make a movie doesn't mean they have a script or or any talent. <laughs> that movie was horrible I, I <laughs> I, i've got to see it now so i would have count i would coach brian to wait and work on the projects that because there were projects that came along that were that i should have held out for because if you're in you know some of these movies you're off doing something else and you don't have the opportunity to do the, the right better quality because i don't know if you guys understand getting a hold of a good script as soon as a script has any merit at all that is pretty decent it becomes a hot property in hollywood and you've got people people with you know experience and names trying to get there at they want that to be their next lily pad i didn't have anybody in the industry to coach me and i you know maybe if i'd have had a manager that i had a talent i i had an experienced agent but he died my first agent was one of the first people to die of AIDS. And then the gal that had been his assistant became the agent. And she didn't, she never said, Brian, don't do this. I don't want you to do this movie. This is a bad idea. But I mean, just looking at the script, how can you, how would you know something is a bad idea? I mean, seriously. From at that age, at age 25, you're, I didn't, hadn't seen enough movies to know that. I could read it now. I can tell you when a script sucks. Like most scripts nowadays, I don't get through the first, I don't make it through the script. What's your biggest just, red flag? Yeah, I'm curious about it because remember, Will Smith passed up Neo in The Matrix. Wow. When I look at on it's especially now in hindsight, the beauty of being middle aged, I don't give a shit. If I look at the story and it looks cool, I don't care if the movie was made with five bucks or five million. If it sucks, I'm gonna say it sucks. If it's an Oscar nominee, it'll suck. I'll tell you right now, I don't give a shit. I know it's gonna suck, but if it's on the bottom shelf, there'll probably be some. <laughs> if it's on the bottom shelf of a movie store, there'll be something <laughs> probably interesting I'm gonna watch. So, all right, let's take. And I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'll tell you, I liked it. The movie, something is out there. That TV series. Oh, what do you know? You were in that. <laughs> anyway, something is out there. If I looked at that pitch. I could clearly remember the TV commercial on TV. It's like, holy shit, I got to watch. I was 10 years old. So I was like, oh, shit, I got to watch that. <laughs> to say it was a bad movie, I can't because if I read the the synopsis of it, if I were to read the script, I'm like, dude, I got to be in this. It just sounds like you're being a little hard on yourself for you know taking some of the roles. There's no way back then that you could have looked at something to know whether it's going to be good or bad. Hell, most of the stuff that makes it popular now is a crap shoot anyway. Well, I'll tell you that you're right. The 25-year-old Brian wouldn't know. But I know right now what you can say when you read a script, you can say this has chance. This has a chance. Justin, what's your red flag? I'm sorry to step on that 
question. I'm curious too. What 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 is your red flag of a script? Say? That's it. well, you know, you're, uh, that's interesting. That's a very you know that's something I'd like to think about. Well, first off, um, I have a pretty good ear for dialogue. What is kind of how how people talk. So the dialogue needs to flow for me. It needs these need to sound like real people. And then secondly, plausibility. Does it does it stay? You know, if we're talking about a realistic if a realistic drama, is this, is this how people behave? Is there any flaws? Are we suddenly going to allow coincidence to be a big, a big factor? You know, if it's a comedy, do the jokes make you laugh? If it's, and, and, and I guess now too, you know, I do, I've read literally, I know I've read over a thousand scripts because it's typically, and a lot of the scripts I was reading were, you know, good guy versus bad guy. So is that villain now somebody, is this a realistic villain? Or are they just having him do bad things that aren't really justified? You know, does this, if it's an action adventure movie, does it have pace? Does it, does it, does it make you want to keep reading it to find out what's mm. going to happen? You know, do I get hooked into the story? Right. And those are all, those are all good signs. So, I mean, I guess that's the old, as if you get hooked in the story. So, I mean, there must have been, was it, you know, some of these scripts back then, you didn't care, you were just happy to get the job? Or did you actually read any of it like, Ooh, I like where this is going. Are there any of them like that that you can remember where you were just like, yeah, I want to do this? Golly, I, I've got to tell you this. I have gotten to audition for so few really good scripts. I, uh, Dragonheart cracked me up for sure. Dragonheart was his, I really cracked me up. And I wish, I wish they would have spent more time fleecing the towns than, <laughs> than, than kind of fighting the dragon and the king at the end. Because that was the funnest part of the movie to me. Yeah. They were taking advantage of these poor, these poor set. I mean, they have that dragon catch the arrow under its and then fall into a swamp. <laughs> I mean, that was so funny. It was too funny. Was a, that was a really, that's a delightful story. And then I say, you know, and then I think the kind of projects that you want to be involved with would change over time. Initially, I was just, you know, we had it beat into our heads that, you know, it's so hard to get an acting job. You know, the fact that people were, offering me a job, I was just thrilled to be there. I mean, a couple of movies that I, scripts I really loved was uh, Pass the Ammo. Have you guys ever watched Pass the Ammo? I have not. Bill Paxton, Tim Curry, Annie Potts. Holy shit, I gotta watch that now. It's a, it, well, and, and that script cracked my ass up, okay? <laughs> and then what happened was the Tim and Tammy Faye Baker story broke while the film was in mm. post-production. And the facts of that story were way better than the <laughs> license that they took because it involves a televangelist. Yeah. The fact, the plot of our movie and, and what we had those televangelists doing wasn't as good as what Jim and Tammy Faye had done. And so when the movie came out, it just kind of, mm. and like I was reading an article about the Borgias. Did you guys, have you guys watched any of the Borgias with Jeremy Irons? Mm -mm, I've heard. I haven't watched it, but I, I know a lot about it. Well, there was this. Apparently, there were two Borgias made at the same time. There was a Czechoslovakian Borgia teleplay, and there was the uh, the Showtime version. And this is really, to me, this is fascinating. Apparently, the Catholic cardinals and the Pope had concubines and and payoffs and bribes, and that was just completely normal that was that was just a part of the culture and the the borgias that was made in apparently in czechoslovakia just went right into that made it more historically accurate where the borgias that uh they made for showtime they felt that they had to ease people into that debauchery so they invented characters to you know, like like to to be a little concerned that they were marrying off a 14 year old girl to a 61-year-old guy, that that was just expected. It was normal. Nobody gave a shit about the age difference then. So that, that to me, is pretty fascinating how they then, you know, this relates back to what we expect from televangelists. They were nice to the what the televangelists had did and passed the ammo because we hadn't learned about the debauchery and what was going on in, in the real televangelist world. Brian, I'm curious knowing this about knowing your thoughts on some of your previous work. What are your thoughts about Mortal Kombat? Would you take that script? There was part of that script that bugged me, and I did speak with the producers about it. But the guy that produced Mortal Kombat was was a douche. <laughs>
really. <laughs> it wasn't about I, I, talking story to him was was difficult. Our director was great, but he had the same issues that I did. You know, you're working in a foreign country and trying to get the people in L.A. to approve stuff. Like, it was really weird to me in that script that you wanted Shao Kahn to be the biggest badass on the planet, right? He's the he's the toughest of them all. And you have a scene of him going to his dad saying, "Dad, basically, Daddy, I can do this. Trust me. I'll do it. I'll do a good job. I'll be better. How does that make him the baddest ass on the planet? It was so... And, and they... And the guy that they cast was, you know, a foot taller than I was. And I'm not short. I still don't understand why they would do that. You want your bad guy to be the biggest, baddest ass on the planet. You don't want him, to, you know, I got to impress my daddy. <laughs> I don't think that's, I mean, I played the game a little bit. I don't remember anything about Shao Kahn's, Shao Kahn's dad in the game. And that storyline get is whatever it is now at this point, it doesn't matter. Were you aware of the Mortal Kombat craze going into that? Oh, absolutely. I'd seen the first movie with Christopher Lambert. I think Christopher Lambert in that first movie was a a, a more, what would we say, kind of a more human storyline. It was more kind of logical as it progressed, where our, our version had, you know, and these are just script issues, just, you know, things that kind of, scenes that kind of clunkily happened versus flowed naturally t through the characters. The casting is what, now I will say, say what you will about the movies, and even the first one, like, I mean, I told Dave, Robin Shu was the perfect Liu Kang, but everyone cast in the Mortal Kombat film, even Christopher Lambert, who's supposed to be the Japanese god of thunder, and yet it's Christopher Lambert, I mean, I was like 13, it's like, okay, I'm in, I don't care. <laughs> but, I mean, even hindsight, look, everybody cast in that movie was perfect. Even you at show when I was like, "Oh my God, it's him!" At show, dude. But here's the but. But the actor replacement for Raiden, and it's just, there's nothing against James Ramon at all. Because However, James, James is awesome in some I'm, parts. He when is I'm like expecting Christopher Lambert, but all of a sudden it's not. That's just that's jarring. And like I said, it's nothing against him. James Ramar's portrayal is Raiden. Nothing like that. But when you do that in a movie, man, that's that's rough. Right from the get. That's a big that's, character. It's kind of takes you. Yeah, out of it's kind of. Mm. Yeah, it's well, it's like it's just, it's like playing a, a song that you're used to hearing, but suddenly instead of it being a guitar solo, it's a piccolo solo. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Yeah. Very true. It's like going to see or turning on Iron Maiden and you expect to hear Number of the Beast, but it's not Bruce Dickinson, it's Paul Deanna. Hey, stop sending the hate. I can hear it burning up. He's a great singer. Blaze Bailey's a great singer. But when you turn on Number of the Beast and you're expecting Bruce and it ain't, it's a system shock. And that's all Mortal Kombat. That's all I'm saying about Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Because, like I said, the casting was great. Absolutely perfect. It's just a shame that because it was that first one was so big and then to go with you know you see the sequel and just for that just that one change it's kind of like the seinfeld episode his girlfriend with a dead tooth it just you can't everything you try to pay attention to you just you always zero back to the dead tooth yeah cause, and and i love james remar in dexter is, is, isn't he perfect in dexter he is he needs to be i mean i say needs to be because he's been in so many but did you not see dexter i have not seen dexter i have just kept putting it off he is i'm gonna so he's so good he needs uh -huh. to be in more noir i would lose i've been on a noir kick lately and of course i'd love to see more of that anyway but he's one of those actors he could pull off a good noir thing. now tell it. well you say you've been on a noir kick tell me what three noir movies you've watched lately counting neo-noir or originals i just want to what what your noir is I actually, for the first time, watched L.A. Confidential uh, the okay. other day. I had never seen that, and I oh. freaking loved it. Me oh, my too. God. Me too. I, that was so – it was it scratched the itch because I've been scripting out some audio drama stuff, and so I'll find myself going into rabbit holes, and I realize I've never actually written – a noir specifically a noir i've used the trappings of it but never realized why i'd actually done it or where it came from you know and so i was like well let's just go explore this a little bit and so i of course seven even though it's not a noir it mm -hmm. still is I, I it started with seven just mainly for the atmosphere and the mood and then from that it's like well you know let me 
watch some other stuff, see if I could find some stuff with serial killers and things like that, and ended up hitting noir. And I was like, there we go. Let's start looking into that. And so you have to hit, starting from the new stuff, you know, like Sin City, of course. And then I was like, LA Confidential, what's that? Let me see that. And then Mulholland, was it Mulholland Drive? I haven't seen yeah. that. It's probably been 20 years since I saw that movie. Whenever it first came out, I saw it. And I was too young and just didn't pay attention to it at the time when I watched it. So that one's on my list again. And then, uh, and then of course, you got Maltese Falcon. And it's been a while since okay. I've seen that. So I'll be pulling that one back up, too. And then the you should throw, if, you're into, if you're into that kind of those L.A. story ones, you know, I'd throw, when's the last time you watched Chinatown? It's been a while. And if I had uh, watched it, it was, yeah, it's like specifically on purpose to sit down and watch it. No, but it's in my queue since it popped up because I watched up, which is, it's not a noir, even though it actually is Black Rain, the Michael Douglas film. Well, I watched yeah, years ago, it came out and I watched it and I saw it again the other day. I was like, ah, Black Rain, I watched it. I was like, well, I mean, it's got all the, it's got all the tropes of a noir. It, yeah, I guess it kind of is, you know, that's neither here or there, but yeah, I just happened to to watch it and because of that chinatown is now on my queue yeah. so uh, i'll be checking that out too do you have any that you would recommend anymore any more noir films that i would add to your list i think i'm thinking of la Conf who are the stars in la confidential Man, they had uh guy pierce and what's his face uh, fighting around the world oi what you look um Russell Crowe. <laughs> okay, okay, right, right, right. Well, there was a, there's a more a more recent one, it's kind of that era that had a good looking actor. I'm blanking. Black Dahlia. Same same era. It was kind of gangsters. Same same era. Took place in L.A. Gangster movie. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, um, that is a noir. Yes, it is. It's a very good noir. You know, the lead, the lead is getting involved with the gangster's beautiful wife in blue dress. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm trying to remember the name. Sorry, if it comes to me, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back to you. When you say you write, you're writing what? Audio drama. Who does your voices? I'll get either friends and stuff, and then as I write more i'm actually starting to branch out you know we're reaching out to other actors and i've kind of broadened my stable and so we have actually justin and i have one that we're prepping now trying to secure the actors and get all the ducks in a row for that one and then just a couple more once i finish the scripts i'll start reaching out and try to broaden the stable but for now all the ones i've been using have just been friends i'll get angelique she's been several of them you know reach out to friends and see if they want to be in it Angelique, the pink Corvette Angelique? No, that's Angeline. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I'll gladly take up the mantle, you know? Hey, acting can be fun. Remarkable. Oh, absolutely. And, and like you said earlier, you know, voice acting, it's, I love it. It's great because it just, it stemmed from, you know, everybody wants to be in a movie or make a movie and stuff. I've done it my whole life, writing stories and stuff like that. So being able to do it with audio. And then eventually it's like, eh, screw it, I don't need a camera. You know, I'll do audio because radio drama and audio drama is active. If I'm doing a movie, just like it's disposable, I'll sit on the couch and watch it. If it sucks, I'm gonna change the channel. You know, if you, oh, Oscar nominee, flip, let me flip it over to something that's out there. Ah, oh, yeah, this is badass, you know, I'm gonna watch that. Whereas if it's an audio drama, you have to actually sit there and actively participate in it. Otherwise, my, you're, you're gonna miss something. Oh, my recent something is out there story, I was in, a a theater a screening of a movie this is pre-covid and who's sitting in the row in front of me but cortese you know he's the lead of something's out there cortese right it's been forever since i've seen that movie <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's joe cortese and that was you know that was written by frank lupo uh, frank lupo's is freaking is an awesome writer he also wrote the episode of werewolf i was yeah. in yeah werewolf. That, i mean in both of those characters are uh, he has such a, a breadth of knowledge, especially with the classics and his understanding of human psychology. I mean, some of the stuff he wrote is some of the best lines I've ever got to say as, an, as a professional actor, even in some things out there. And just understanding, uh, it was really, really marvelous what he wrote. Anyway, Joe Cortese, uh, the lead of the movie, we're talking, he has no idea who I am. Doesn't remember <laughs> me at all. 
and I was the main <laughs> bad guy in the pilot of the. No, I did. Uh, to this day, I don't think he remember. He, he knows who there I am. <laughs> That's fine. I had no clue who he is, but I know who and, you are. So I mean, and it's kind of funny because I think he was with a he was with an agent or a manager, and I remember overhearing conversation bit snippets of conversation, and one of the sentences I heard was, "Oh yeah, they're still relevant." To who? I mean, you're deciding. Yeah. You're deciding who gets to sit on in the in the relevance club. What do you have on the horizon? On the horizon, I am looking for the next great part. I've been a bit spoiled by having to work on by having to work by being lucky enough to work with you know Joel Cohen and be in that fantastic production. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm kind of, I guess, 65-year-old Brian is talking 63-year-old, 62. I'm not going to be 63 till August. <laughs> I don't need the money, you know. I want to thank the Screen Actors Guild because they have allowed me, without residuals and accumulating a pension, I wouldn't be able to be in the position where I could say, no, you know, I don't want to do that job. Like Macbeth, I love being involved in a production that stands a chance at standing the test of time, something right. that people should watch as the years go by. And Macbeth will certainly be in the in the pantheon of Shakespeare productions that have been filmed. It's potentially the best execution of a Shakespeare play on film. It is pretty remarkable. What I'm they so did. excited to watch it. It's pretty effing remarkable. So I'm looking for the next script. I actually, um, I, I on Saturday, my, it's my, the agents, they work so much. It's really disappointing that they work on weekends. That's a whole different st story about breakdowns. But he sent me a motion capture voice over audition for a group of guys that play golf together and are kind of commenting on, on American culture in a comedic way. And I was scheduled to play golf. And the, the scene, the audition scene takes place on a golf course with a golf cart. So we shot that today, like an hour before we shot the interview. I was golfing anyway. So I took my camera and we shot it on the golf course. And it, that, like I read that, it's a small production, but it caught my imagination. I, uh, I did audition for it. I'm, you know, turning down more auditions than I'm actually, everything, I haven't been to an actual interview in three years. You're all doing, you're doing self tapes. I play, uh, whenever Angela Bassett's 911 goes back in time. I'm the I'm the, the meaner, gruffer fire captain on 911. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great show. It's, God, how they pull out the heartstrings on that show. It, it really <laughs> is pretty remarkable. Potentially have some of those episodes to look okay. forward to. I love playing a fire captain. You know, being the, showing these, I haven't got to play a lot of parts that had, that weren't in some type of life or death situation. You know, people that have actual families and relationships, that's that's endearing to me. It You know, it, when it makes your heart, kind of makes your heart giggle a little bit, right. that's a really good sign. If you read a script and your heart giggles a bit, then it kind of says, hey, you know, you should, maybe you should see if you can help on this one. So that's that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to. Um, Project-wise, I'm a big Help the Planet person. My father was a science teacher. Mm -hmm. He was... You know, president of the Northwest Steelheaders Association. We have a tiny house on the Oregon coast on a lake. So I'm converting a pontoon boat that had a gas motor in it to an electric solar roofed pontoon boat. Google wing foiling, wing foiling, F-O-I-L-I-N-G. That is a remarkable, wonderful physical activity that I do up in Oregon. Oh, I think I put this, I might've put this on Instagram. But that's that's me on the yellow wing on the yellow wing there and that's notice the board is not on the water you're riding on a no. hydrofoil and okay, that's just yeah. that the wing is that has no hard parts it's inflatable that wing what i'm holding is as dangerous as a beach ball and this is our lake in oregon on the other side of that sand dune is the pacific ocean wow. how long have you been uh doing that well i've only been wing foiling for two summers now the sport's just been invented because you had you had windsurfing, which evolved into kite surfing, which evolved into kite foiling. We were first kiting with hydrofoils, and then kite foiling has evolved. And then when kite foiling was happening, they started stand-up paddle hydrofoiling, 
And then from stand-up paddle hydrofoiling and kite foiling and windsurfing, we now have wing foiling. It blows my mind that it's even physically possible that we can get these boards to come up out of the water in you know 12 miles an hour of wind and you're holding this inflatable thing. And it's the easiest of all of those sports to learn, believe it or not. What was the uh, learning curve for you? Did you bust your ass a bunch? Uh, well, I got the foil out of the water, but, you know, a couple of times my first time out, you know, get out of the water. But it's yeah. you you have to really refine where your feet are in that center of balance because it's a knife blade going through the water at, you know, 10, 15 miles an hour. And so any little adjustment is going to. Yeah. So yeah. so getting get, finding the foot position and keeping the board out of the water. That's the you know, that's the next that's step two. And like my girlfriend, who was never a windsurfer, kiter, saw the wing foil and said, I, I convinced her to try it. Uh, she got up on that board uh, like and had like a 30 second run her third day doing it. And this is, uh, yeah, like, and I took, that's with the, uh, I took that picture with this phone. You know, this is the Galaxy Note Ultra with that five times zoom lens on it. But that's nice. her, she was never, she was never a, a, a water sport person, never had a sport in high school or college. Uh, she runs, she runs, she's in good shape, but that's, that's her on Flores Lake. Look at that. It's just freaking beautiful. It's Ripping so, it up. In kite surfing and windsurfing, when that, that board on the water, when you're going 20 miles an hour and slamming in just a little chop, it, it's really jarring. And it, it, a lot of people have hurt their knees. That's gone now. You're just, it's just glass. Wow. And what you do on one side, you flip the sail and you do it the exact same thing on the opposite side. So it's not like a, a racket sport where you're going to load up the muscles on one side of your body and eventually have back issues. Yeah, yeah. This is like water sport ballet. And it's the easiest to learn of all of those sports. Maybe one day I'll try to learn it myself. Okay. <laughs> So what was the name of the company where you were selling 55-gallon drums? <laughs> I think you're making an order. <laughs> they, they, I think they've gone out of business, actually, because a lot of the customers followed me when I left. So. <laughs> oh, really? Well, what was the name of the company was, when it was in business? What did they call it was themselves? In, intimate Treasures was was. Where intimate treasures God. in a 55 <laughs> yeah. gallon drum that sounds really intimate <laughs> well like, i mean if you've got a close circle of friends maybe <laughs> <laughs> call like iffy or uh call like iffy lube or something you know <laughs> <laughs> easy rider that's no no we we tested all the products yes <laughs> oh oh <laughs> far out <laughs> I'll quantify that. <laughs> well, Brian, it's been a pleasure talking to you. This I mean, yes, there has been Thank pleasure you. at times. <laughs> oh, look, the bunny's back. We have a bunny that lives in our backyard, and he's been here four years. We have all kinds of coyotes. So the fact that this guy has survived for four years is unbelievable he's elusive and right here at the end i know i'm not we got to get this battery charged so i can't i could potentially i could have potentially got a shot of the bunny yeah it's crazy it's amazing maybe okay, we can get him yeah. next time if he survives yeah okay guys <laughs> great talking to you have Take a good care, night, man. Man. yeah and send, send me a link for your audio drama that you think is your best one. Oh shit okay yeah just All put right, it yeah, on the email so i do i do you know i I drive the, you know, I got the electric car and I put it on autopilot and I go to Oregon half a dozen times uh, a year. So Need something to listen to. I, I do long drives and I I live on podcasts. I'll All take right. you up on that. Okay. I get them done. I'll, I'll take you up on that. Hell, you got the, you got a voice I'd want anyway. So yeah, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> okay. All right, Brian. Hey, you take care. Good night, right? guys. Good, Good night, night okay. man. Good night. 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 Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. 
We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.